Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey pelvic people, welcome back to Foley 2006 on sacroiliac joint pain, including the anatomy, biomechanics, diagnosis, and treatment. This was authored by Brian Foley and Ralph Buschbacher, who are both MDs. The literature on sacroiliac joint pain is complex and controversial, but there is growing interest in this area in ways to manage and treat conditions that are related to it. This article reviews the literature on SIJ pain and dysfunction, as well as the growing information on injections, surgery, and conservative care options. So let's start with the anatomy, and I love reviewing anatomy 200 times because as well as you think you know something, there's always a piece you forgot or has been clarified since you last reviewed it. So unless you're just a sacrum genius, um, here we go. Let's start with the SIJ because that just riles up the entire PT world. So the SIJ has multiple functions. Because the joint joins the spine to the pelvis, it helps to absorb vertical forces from the spine and transmit them to the pelvis and the lower extremities. It also allows forces to be transmitted from the extremities to the spine. The SIJ joint is a diarthroidal joint with two bony surfaces, the sacrum and the ilium. The joint is about one to two millimeters wide. The joint surfaces are lined with hyaline cartilage, although the iliac cartilage seems thinner and more fibrocartilaginous. The superior third of the hyaline iliac cartilage is strongly attached to the surrounding stabilizing ligaments, so those are going to form wide margins of fibrocartilage. The inferior third of the joint along that iliac bone has some histologic characteristics of a synovial joint. The sacrum's rough irregular surface and its wedge shape form an interlocking mechanism with the ilium. Remember that at the S1 segment, the posterior width of the sacrum is greater than its anterior width. The converse is also true at the S3 segment. So at the lower sacral segments, the sacrum is more narrow distally. What I thought was interesting is that in a study of 534 patients, no two patients had the same joint appearance. So I remember someone in a class compared the sacrum to a snowflake because no two are the same. And while that's extremely cheesy, it's also kind of true. The joint space decreases with age and becomes rougher and more filled with debris. Despite historical opinion, the joint doesn't truly fuse with normal aging, but what is true is that as the joint fills and ages, it becomes stiffer and less effective as that shock absorption. So this, along with decreasing bone mineral density, predisposes the elderly to those sacral insufficiency fractures. So let's talk more on a topic that's more polarizing than anything. Does the sacrum move? This article discusses that unlike most joints, there are no muscles acting directly across the SIJ. It is fairly stable. Several studies have been done regarding the motion of the joint. During activities, the joint motion is pretty small. It's not exceeding those two to three degrees in those transverse or the longitudinal planes. Clinicians are gonna vary in their opinions about how much mobility is normal, whether it could result in pain, and whether it can be clinically detected. Joint motion during pregnancy is thought to be increased, and we're gonna discuss that a little bit later on. During flexion of the hip, that ipsilateral ilium is gonna glide backward and downward. Meanwhile, during extension, the ilium is gonna glide forward and away from that sacrum. 
Muscularly, the lumbar multifidi and the internal oblique muscles activate before spinal motion and help to stiffen the spine, reducing that intraspinal motion. Richardson et al.'s research using Doppler imaging of vibration and simultaneous electromyographic recording showed that contraction of the transverse abdominis significantly decreased the laxity of the SIJ. Other muscular patterns known include that one, the lumbopelvic muscles fire differently in patients with SIJ pain, two, patients with SIJ pain have delays in electromyographic activity of the multifidi, the glute max, and the internal obliques, and lastly, the biceps femoris fires earlier in those with SIJ pain. So clinically, this research may eventually indicate a benefit of targeting specific muscle groups in an exercise program. Okay, so let's now talk about ligaments. These are going to be a little hard to envision. It may be more helpful just to look at photos of these, but if that's not an option right now, let's just verbally run through them and try and visualize them along the way. So on the anterior surface of the joint, we're going to think of the anterior sacroiliac ligaments. This article doesn't really go into it, but I want you to envision looking at that anterior portion of the sacrum and it attaching from both sides of the sacrum to the ilium. So if you look at a photo with just the bony formations, that bony line between the sacrum and the ilium on the anterior surface is where it connects. So anatomically, we're gonna be thinking of the ala of the ilium to the pelvic surface of the sacrum. So this is a super deep structure. I cannot imagine it's one that anyone would be able to palpate. It's a pretty well-developed ligament, most specifically the lower fibers near that greater sciatic notch. And you know what they say, for every anterior sacral ligament, there's a posterior sacral ligament. So this is a pretty compound ligament too. It's composed of three bands. So this is much thicker than the anterior ligament. It's posterior and superior to the joint, and it fills the spaces between the tuberosities of the ilium and the sacrum. So for that posterior sacroiliac ligament, this is really lightly brushed on in the article, but I think ligaments are important and worth reviewing, so just bear with me. The article doesn't describe the same anatomic groups as I've seen elsewhere. If you Google or go back to any of your course pictures, you'll see that the posterior sacroiliac ligament is three bands, including the interosseous, the short posterior, and the long posterior SI ligaments. This article goes over all of those, but it doesn't classify them as the bands of the posterior SI ligaments. So just that review again, posterior SI ligaments includes the interosteous, the short posterior, and the long posterior ligaments. So also remember that a lot of these people that call the posterior SI ligaments as the dorsal ligaments. So the long dorsal ligament is the long posterior SI ligament. That's a ligament we're gonna hear a lot about, so I'm gonna go into it. But first I'm gonna start with the interosseous and the short dorsal or posterior SI ligaments. Okay, so the interosseous ligament. That's part of the posterior SI ligament band. It's a short but very strong band that spans the gap between the sacrum and the ilium on the posterior side of the joint by attaching on their tuberosities. The short posterior or dorsal SI ligament is a short ligament found superficial to the interosseous sacroiliac ligament, the one that we just talked about. So it fills the upper part of the gap between the ilium and the sacrum. So we're gonna think posterior, top of the sacrum, from sacrum to ilium. Now for the long dorsal ligament that we hear a lot about, or maybe it's just me hearing a lot about it, staring at all of these binders and articles. The long dorsal ligament fills the lower part of the gap between the ilium and the sacrum. So we're gonna still be thinking posterior, bottom of the sacrum, to the ilium. 
It's titled long because it's longer and more inferior and has to stretch more from the posterior superior iliac spine to the third and the fourth transverse tubercles of the sacrum. Sometimes I love anatomy because the titles make a lot of sense and I just need to get a visual in order to understand why. So we're going to think long dorsal ligament has to go a long way from that PSIS to the bottom of the sacrum. Functionally, an interesting point that this article made was that slackening of the long posterior sacroiliac ligament can occur from increasing tension on the lats or in the glute max muscle. Something I actually forgot about with the long dorsal ligament since I last studied these was that it has a close anatomical relation with the erector spinae muscle, the posterior layer of the thoracolumbar fascia, and part of the sacrotuberous ligament. So onto accessory ligaments, which I kind of think are like the celebrity ligaments of the pelvis. Every course I go to, someone knows a new technique or has a new question I haven't heard about for the sacrotuberous or the sacrospinous ligaments. So let's start with sacrotuberous. It's a flat triangular ligament that has a couple superior attachments. It starts at the gap between the posterior superior and posterior inferior iliac spines. So the PSIS and the PIIS. The second band comes from the lateral side of the sacrum and those two create this triangle shape on the ischial ramus. So big picture, the main part of the sacrotuberous ligament connects the sacrum with the ischial tuberosity. Some fun facts about that sacrotuberous ligament includes that it's partially blended with the posterior dorsal ligament, the posterior surface blends with the glute max, and the inferior fibers continue into the biceps femoris. I think another reason that this is kind of a celebrity ligament is because it blends with the fascial sheath of the internal pudendal vessels and pudendal nerve. And anyone who's seen anyone with pudendal pain knows how important it is to get them out of it. So onto that sacrospinous ligament now. This is a thin triangle band underneath the sacrotuberous ligament. It starts at the border of the lower sacral and upper coccygeal segments anterior to the sacrotuberous ligament. Fun fact about this ligament, the sacrospinous ligament is thought to be a fibrous part of the coccygeus muscle as it's largely blended with it. So besides all their structural functions, anatomical relations to the surrounding muscles, the sacrotuberous and sacrospinous ligaments also transform that greater and lesser sciatic notch into the greater and lesser sciatic foramina, respectively. So they're kind of a big deal. And it's easy to forget anatomy, so I have to be cheesy so I remember it too. So I hope that helped you remember the celebrity and even those non-celebrity ligaments a little bit better too. Okay, I went a little bit more into detail on that than what was in the article. We're going to get back on track to cover innervation, epidemiology, clinical findings, imaging, and some treatment. So for innervation, we're caring about this for function and pain purposes. Despite multiple studies in the US, Japan, and Germany, the exact innervation of the SIJ is unclear. The anterior portion may be innervated by the sacral plexus, whereas the posterior portion may have innervation from the spinal nerves. Some argue that the predominant innervation is from the L4-S1 nerve roots with a little bit of the superior gluteal nerve. Others argue that the joint is only innervated by the dorsal sacral rami. One author proposed that the posterior innervation is from the lateral branches of the posterior rami of L4 through S3, and the anterior innervation is from the L2-S2 segments. The big picture is that this is a really blurry topic. On to epidemiology. 70% of people experience low back pain at some point in their life, and SIJ dysfunction is often argued about, but an underappreciated source of low back pain or buttock pain. 
What isn't as arguable is that these authors noted that the SIJ has been found to be the pain generator using controlled fluoroscopically guided diagnostic blocks in between 13 and 30% of those chronic low back pain patients. So let's get into some of the things that we do best as PT, which is that clinical presentation and physical exam dissection. Remember that SIJ pain can also present as buttock, pelvic, sacral, or low back pain. The pain is usually not above the belt line. Unilateral pain is more common than bilateral by as much as a four to one ratio. And there's a history of trauma in 44 to 58% of individuals with SIJ pain. SIJ pain is more common in pregnant women, which is possibly as a result of the release of the hormone relaxin, which allows that pelvic expansion and increased motion. Some other factors such as trauma of childbirth, altered posture, increased lordosis, and weight gain can also increase the risk of pain. One test we talked about before that has good sensitivity and specificity is the thigh thrust test, which is that posterior shearing force in a downward pressure. Now, some bleeding into the joint during delivery can predispose some to sacroiliitis, which can be seen on CT scans. Pelvic asymmetry or pelvic torsion is also a common finding. That's going to be a rotation of the hemipelvis in the sagittal plane and can be either from an anterior or a posterior rotation of one anominate related to the sacrum. Treatment of such a malpositioning is recommended by some to reduce pain, but the association between static pelvic asymmetry and low back pain remains unclear. One study of four tests of pelvic symmetry or SIJ movements showed that an intertester reliability was too poor to be useful. So this article goes into other similar studies, all with very similar outcomes of poor dependability. Some of the clinical tests used to help diagnose SIJ pain include Faber, distraction compression tests, focal SIJ tenderness testing, seated and standing galette tests, femoral shear tests, and the modified Gensalins. The likelihood that SIJ dysfunction is the source of pain increases markedly if three or more of those provocation tests are positive, if the pain is unilateral, as well as if the pain is below L5 without lumbar pain, or if the pain increases with rising from sitting. One study, though, reported that they found that no physical exam test demonstrated diagnostic value and that SIJ pain is resistant to identification by historical and physical exam. So, That study used a 90% criterion for this study, so it's argued that that might be too high and stringent of a value. When a 70% threshold was used, some research found that when those three clinical tests, the Faber, posterior shear, and resisted abduction tests were combined, the tests have a pretty high predictive value for pain arising from the sacroiliac joint. For diagnostic imaging, the authors note imaging generally is not really helpful for evaluation of SIJ pain. This includes things like bone scans and CT scans. X-rays and MRIs can be useful in identifying sacral fractures, tumors, that sacroiliitis we talked about, and ankylosing spondylitis. MRIs can also evaluate sacroiliitis, especially those with spondyloarthritis. If you're not familiar with spondyloarthritis, the dorsocaudal synovial point of the joint is involved significantly more than the ventral part, especially early in the disease. The authors go into intraarticular diagnostics next, and it's important to note that there is no gold standard for the diagnosis of SIJ pain. 
Many practitioners and researchers consider intraarticular fluoroscopically guided injections to be the closest thing currently available to a gold standard. So that's going to be an injection that must be performed under radiologic guidance to ensure intraarticular flow. It can be performed under CT scans or MRIs or using ultrasound. Most often, we're going to find it under fluoroscopy because of its availability, convenience, and frankly, its cost. If you have a patient who received an injection without imaging, we're gonna assume it's either in the soft tissue or periligamentous. And this is just based on the clinical findings that those non-imaging guided injections have actually only been shown to end up in that intraarticular space 22% of the time. So without any guided imaging, one in five end up in that joint space. So if you haven't had a patient get one of these, this is what happens. The patient is going to be placed in prone. The joint is going to be identified under fluoroscopy. The soft tissue is anesthetized with the local anesthetic. The inferior portion of the joint is then penetrated with a small bore spinal needle under fluoroscopy. Contrast material is injected to confirm an arthrogram pattern to avoid vascular flow and to evaluate any capsular rents. A mixture of corticosteroid and local anesthetic is then injected. The total volume accepted in is the 1 to 2.5 milliliter range. Despite proper technique, joint extravation or a fluid leak into the surrounding tissue is pretty common, and that reduces the diagnostic specificity. The injected solution can flow ventrally, blocking the sacral plexus, cephalid flowing around the L5 spinal nerve, or dorsally into the first sacral foramen. The procedure is often really well tolerated, and there's going to be some common risks that you're going to see like bleeding, pain, headaches, infection, etc. So without that image guidance, there's little likelihood that the drug is going to penetrate through that thick posterior sacroiliac ligament and into the joint. Injections without placebo control have also confirmed SIJ pain in 13 to 30% of patients with chronic low back pain, like we mentioned before. For conservative treatments, the authors first discussed the phases of SIJ pain. So one to three days being the acute phase, three days to eight weeks being the recovery phase, and maintenance phase being beyond eight weeks. They mentioned that acute phase conservative management may look like icing, rest, and followed by heat and progressive mobility. They mentioned that the recovery phase can progress the joint to joint mobilization from manual therapy, muscle energy techniques, correction of leg length discrepancies, and therapeutic exercises. They then discuss things like correcting strength and muscle length and balances, including anterior pelvic tilts, having a tight hip flexor, and extensor weakness combinations. They also note fitting for an SIJ belt for stability and some pain reduction, and the overall goal being to maximize function and minimize pain. Some things without a lot of clinical evidence that's being investigated includes radiofrequency neurotomy. This is an alternative treatment and has been used to treat zygopophyseal joint pain. There's some preliminary evidence for this and helping some SIJ pain, specifically the radiofrequency ablation. I think I've only seen one patient with sacral pain get the radiofrequency neurotomy, and it was at a really large hospital system, and from my understanding, it was pretty expensive. Um, So that might be why there's not a lot of research and why patients may not get that very commonly. The poorly understood innervation and the variable anatomy are some of the most significant obstacles in getting relief to these patients when using radiofrequency denervation. 
So what does have some clinical evidence is intraarticular corticosteroids. Most articles and clinicians find joint injections to be helpful for both diagnostic and therapeutic purposes. Although true intraarticular injections are the most effective, periarticular injections are also shown to provide some benefit. Of note, I think this is important that this is just one piece of the treatment puzzle and not the whole thing. So these injections should be used in combination with conservative management, and oftentimes, if the injection was helpful, they can repeat that. They note that these injections are typically limited to three in a six-month period or four total in a year, and if the patient is requesting more than that, they recommend more alternative treatments. For surgeries over the past 80-some years, there's been a few approaches that have been used to accomplish SIJ arthrodesis. There are anterior and posterior approaches that both utilize and don't utilize screws. The surgery is indicated for infections, severe instability, and displaced fractures, but remains controversial when used for only low back pain. Big picture, conservative management is preferred as pain relief is often not complete with these surgeries, and they're very much a last resort option. So let's go over some take-home points for this article. Despite that the SIJ is a common source of pain, much remains unknown regarding its diagnostic workup and its treatment. History and physical exam findings can be really helpful in screening for SIJ pain, but individual provocative maneuvers have unproven validity. Fluoroscopically guided injections and conservative therapies serve as useful and a preferred role in reducing pain generated by the SIJ. So there's our article by Foley from 2006 on the SIJ. We're still working through these week four pregnancy article, guys. <laughs> and our next one is by Fody in 2000. That article is titled A Biomechanical Analysis of Gait During Pregnancy. So as always, thank you for listening. I hope to see you all listening at our next episode as well. Bye, everyone. Bye.